and welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, the cinematographers, production designers, costume designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, composers, book authors even. Hopefully we're going to have a book author coming up in a few weeks here. Uh, And you name it, we talk to them. I actually am trying to get some grips uh, on the show. Because so many of these little little jobs, people, they hear it, they see it on the credits. When they stay for the credits, which you really should be doing with every film, people sit through the credits. Um, But they don't know what they do. Uh, and some of my besties are grips who wor- who work over at Sony, as a matter of fact. So I'm trying to get some of the, uh, some of the guys to maybe do a call in or actually come in studio uh, and talk to us about what grips do and how they work in connection with the cinematographers. Um, so I'm hoping that I can uh, put that together for all of you uh, in the coming months. But Today, I'm very excited about today's show. I teased you last week. I have been dying, dying, dying. Spinning Gold is out on Friday. And last week, uh, I, on, the, on the 16th, I spoke with Tim Bogart, the writer-director. Tim Bogart is also the son of Neil Bogart, music producer and founder of Casablanca Records. He is the man who helped create and put on their path to stardom. Donna Summer, the Isley Brothers, Kiss. You know the music. You know the songs. For many of us in my age bracket, this is what we were listening to in the 70s when we were in high school. Um, These are the artists, the songs. Neil Bogart helped shape the taste Uh, The musical taste of so many of us. And uh, to see his story be brought to life on screen and done by his son. Uh, You wonder how it's going to be. Within minutes, I fell in love with the film. It is truly one of my favorite films of the year. Uh, And the needle drops, the music, it is the soundtrack of the 70s. The soundtrack of my life and many of your lives. Uh, it's amazing. And I, I was so excited to get to speak with Tim because, you know, when you're telling a story about your parent, it can be daunting. A lot of trepidation involved. Uh, especially somebody with a parent as famous as Neil Bogart. And... It's just, it's, we covered everything, everything. The interview is amazing. Uh, and you should be hearing that in the second half of the show. Uh, and I'll get into it more then, and you'll hear more. Because, and something, and I've noticed on social media, I just want to point this out about Spinning Gold, people. I'm seeing people post on social media. They're seeing trailers. They're seeing clips. They're seeing some amazing clips of Tyler Parks, who plays Donna Summer. You have to remember that 
What Tim was going for with this film in casting the players of these eventually very well-known talents, he wanted the essence of who these people are. He was not going for a Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Rami Malek-level performance as Freddie Mercury. He wanted the essence because this film follows Neil's journey, Neil Bogart's journey and the journey of all of these artists. Uh, George Clinton, Donna Summer, you know, um, Kiss, and so many, uh, Gladys Knight. Neil Bogart was, he helped shape them. He took Donna Summer, he took her from being LaDonna Gaines to being Donna Summer. Intimate moments in the film. It's not Gene Simmons and Neil Bogart talking. It's son of an immigrant, Neil Bogart, talking with Gene Simmons as an immigrant child. Um, The intimacy levels of the film are just absolutely outstanding. Outstanding. Uh, And truly something that I hope everybody sees. Um, The film will be in theaters this Friday. And don't mind me, if you're, if you're listening on, fa- on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook uh, page and looking, yes, and I'm looking at my phone only because our first callers should have been calling in. And so far, I don't see the phone ringing and neither does Pam. So what we may end up doing here, Pam, is reversing things. And rather than do my interview with Tim Bogart the second half of the show, do it now. Um, While I try and find out (laughs) what's going on, because join us, supposedly joining us live on the show today is Mustafa Kejvari, writer-director of this new film, Colorblind, which is out digitally on April the 4th. It is, it is a beautiful film. It's an amazing film. Uh, it is the story of a colorblind mother and son who face racial and social injustice. The exciting thing, really exciting thing about Colorblind is that it is also the first film uh, that is uh, with a collaboration with color scientists so that colorblindness is actually portrayed and displayed accurately in the film. So there are scenes when we're seeing things from the perspective of the young nine-year-old boy, Monet. He only sees in black and white, whereas his mother, Magdalene, she has a different type of color blindness where she sees shades of colors, but they may not be the actual color that you and I with normal color-sightedness see. Uh, and interwoven in there, besides this very personal relationship with the science here, we also, it's a great platform for the racial and social injustices uh, that have been happening in the world. And in fact, it was the whole George Floyd incident that inspired Mustafa uh, to write this film. But hopefully he will be calling in to us uh, I think we're going to go ahead and we're going to start the wonderful 
wonderful, the interview with the wonderful, wonderful Tim Bogart, writer-director of Spinning Gold. So go ahead, Pam. Hey, Tim. Hey, how are you? I have to tell you, Tim, I am so in love with Spinning Gold. I am, oh, I am crazy about this film. I talked with Byron last week and was just gaga with him talking about all the, the visual tonal bandwidth and the visuals and covering three decades. And now I get to talk with you, the creator of all of this. But boy, oh boy, this, I wanted the film to be longer in all honesty. Thank you for that. Well, by the way, there could have been probably another 10 hours. There was a lot of story to figure out what to boil it down to. Well, not just with story, but the needle drops, the songs. My God. Yeah, I, I, I did have quite a, quite a hand up in the fact that the music is just so great. It's just some of the best there ever was. I know. And, you know, like I told Byron, I said, no, I said, let me tell you, I still have all of the, my original albums and singles from when all of this music came out back in the 70s. All of my original Casablanca albums have transported it across the country with me from when I was buying this stuff in high school. Still has stickers on it from We Three Records in the Plymouth Meeting Mall. Are you kidding me? The music is just amazing. And all I could think of is, oh my, how difficult was it to narrow down your your needle drops? It was so difficult. You know, uh, there was a long period of time where we actually, right after shooting, we had quite a bit of, um, of the Cameo Records era as well. He actually started, of course, with MGM Records, so he had some great, we did uh, obviously have Willy Bully in there, um, but he had so many hits uh, during that period of time. And then going to the Parkway, and then Buddha, and then Casablanca, it, it was extremely hard. U ultimately, we really looked at what songs served the story. I mean, it, it was very important to us for the very beginning that it not be the kind of film where you got up to one of these great songs and then you just stopped and just listened to those songs. Because as wonderful as they are, I always find in those kind of music films um, that the, the narrative tends to stop when it's just giving away the performance. And so what we really were searching for were songs that informed the narrative, songs that informed the characters. And once we did that, things like Death, that really was uh, originally written for, for Peter Chris's wife, but then it changed the name to be my father's wife, my mother. So suddenly death, of course, became consequential. Um, you know, when, when you're in such a hardship moment, the idea of Lean On Me, like those songs, when they were written, were very important narrative songs. Mm -hmm. So for us, it really became just about what songs served the story ultimately. Um, but even then, right up until until the end of production, we still had planned to shoot the whole Curtis Mayfield section. Oh, wow. Um, we were going to do Superfly, and we were going to do a couple others, and it just ultimately became, um, to quote the great Amadeus, too many notes. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that prompted you to go on this journey to tell your dad's story? I mean, his story is fascinating, and anybody who is old enough to have followed 
his career and the various labels that he founded and or, and or worked with over the years, as I did, I knew a lot about your dad just from watching all of his appearances and interviews and keeping up with all that, that stuff back in the day. But for you, what, what prompted you to tell this story, which is now going to be so new to, I'd say, 90% of the audience out there? I think, I think that's right. Um, you know, he, he was such a, it sounds like a silly statement because it seems a little bit obvious, but he was such a larger-than-life character. Um, yes, for, for music, but just in our lives as a father, he was just this extraordinary force. Um, when he passed away, it happened so quickly. Um, we were really unaware of his illness, frankly, until almost the very end. And so um, he suddenly had this gigantic hole ripped away. And I think as any child, I was 12 at the time, um, as any child loses such a significant portion of their life, there becomes a fascination to understand, you know, what degree of haunting you now have by this, this character that, you know, you only kind of knew. So, to, so my fascination with him really started as a son who lost a father, and he was just interested in who that father was. That said, very quickly, maybe almost too quickly, it was maybe only a couple of years when people started knocking on the door about the, the Broadway rights and the movie rights, and, and I think it was too too raw for the family. We weren't, we weren't interested in doing anything at that time. But those... those um, Questions kept coming through the years, and as I started into the into the business and started doing film and television, it suddenly dawned on me: I had the greatest story that was gifted to me. Um, yes, he happened to be my father, but forget that. What a great character! What an what an implausible and probable um, meteoric rise success story. And so, as a storyteller, I suddenly found myself. Okay, and you're listening to Tim Bogart talking about spinning gold. We're going to stop it right there we, because our live guest, Mustafa Kishvari, has called. He has been found. He has called in. Uh, but I promise you, we're going to pick up Tim's interview at that exact moment where we cut it as soon as uh, we finish with Mustafa, and you will hear the entire interview on Spinning Gold on the show live today. So, let me just switch gears here. Hey, Mustafa, Hello? how are you? Hi, uh, I'm good, thank you. Sorry, I thought we had a Zoom link, that's why I was waiting. Uh, I didn't know I had to call in. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Radio, radio, no yes, Zoom. Radio. No Zoom. Yes, so, that's great, yeah. But welcome, welcome. I have to tell you, I watched Colorblind. It is an exquisite film, Mustafa. It is an Thank you so much. It Thank is you. an exquisite film. Visually, it's fascinating. I mentioned at the top of the show that this is, I think, one of the first films to be developed by color scientists so that we actually see what color blindness is. And then you take that and you, it metaphorically, this film, it's literally, figuratively, metaphorically speaks to racism, social injustice, 
while the emotionality and the bonding of a mother and a son over colorblindness and how it really does open the world in many respects. Um, Thank you. Yes. Just, I think that part was for us very important to make sure that we merge art and science together to deliver a unifying message. And, um, I think uh, you know that was what was unique about the project to accurately represent colorblindness as a disability, uh, which a lot, a lot of people don't know about. And just like how colorblind people don't know they're colorblind, maybe through their whole life or later in life. Same with racism, a lot of people don't know they're racist, but you know subconsciously they are, and they're just not aware of it. And I think we all have our own colorblindness in some ways. Well, and I love what you what you have done because. Here we have a mother and a son, Magdalene and Monet. Uh, and Magdalene, she is a painter. She is an artist. She herself has one form of colorblindness. And, but she still sees color and sees the world in color. And that gets incorporated into her art. Because she knows what she's seeing is a color, but that might not be the color you and I are seeing. Yes. Um, but it doesn't take away from the beauty of her work and then she translates much into grayscale identification for her son Monet uh, you know I love the games where okay find something blue this is blue find something blue and looking at the grayscales he can then start identifying what a color is but you also give us this wonderful childlike joy of him painting and using vibrant colors uh, that he may or may not recognize just the exact vibrancy and, and beauty of them. So it's very eye-opening in that regard, but at the same time, it's opening our eyes in terms of the racism issues happening in the world. And it's just beautiful the way you constructed this from a story standpoint. Thank you. And I think Monet, like... But the way he sees everything black and white, uh, I wanted to show that children are like that. They're very pure. They see everything like good or bad, you know, and they don't dis distinguish between uh, races or uh, colors. You're either a good friend or a bad friend. You That's know? it. And, and as we grow up, we have all this other conditioning where we start seeing colors differently and we start having a distortion view of colors. Um, and what it means to be, uh, you know, even your own skin color, you start questioning that, what it means that I'm this color or that color. So in a way, Monet is a pure form of like uh, being a human being without any judgment. And I think all children are not, you know, when we're born, we are not racist. We're like a blank page. And then as we grow up, we have all these, you know, different ideas throughout the, our experiences. And the, the question is how, as parents, we teach children about racism, how soon it is to teach them. And when we do, how do we protect them against that? Because the world is not always what uh, they imagine it to be. So again, as a black boy growing up in that neighborhood, he has questions and, you know, I put them in an opposite character, this racist landlord who lives next to the firefighter, retired firefighter, and he has to babysit the kid. And the idea of like when you put two extreme characters next to each other, how do they respond? Like, because as grown-ups, when we talk about racism, we don't really listen to each other. We can like, you know, attack each other and say things, but when you talk to a child, you can do that. And, you know, you try to look at life from their perspective. And in a way, it you know, connects with their inner child. And then 
the, the racist old man starts realizing that as a child he didn't have those views on colors and he wasn't racist and maybe there's a different way to look at life if you go back to our childhood. Well, and that's exactly what you have, have us witness. Um, and I have to say, you knocked it out of the park with casting Trey Maradotti as Monet and Gary Cock as Chalk as Walton. Those two make this film, Mustafa. They make yeah. this film. The dynamic between the two of them, the innocence that Trey brings to Monet, but it's a very wise innocence as well. Um, and I love that about his, his performance. And to watch what Gary infuses into Walton as he finally realizes and learns that Monet is colorblind. That he and as is his mother, and this is a big eye opener. Um, because and this is a very interesting thing that you you include in the film is that Monet was his mother taught him that you don't tell people because it's a sign of you being weak, and it's that weakness that puts both of them in harm's way. You know, that I think that's what happens in the schools, like when you have any sort of disability, you try not to. Because right now we want, you know, uh, people to be labeled with different, uh, you know, um, let's say somebody is like disabled or somebody has different sexual orientation. Like it's good to be labeling that, that people know about it, but it doesn't mean everybody's going to look at it in a positive way. Some people take advantage of that, right? Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is that, I mean, in a metaphoric way, being a person of color in a society like that is like being disabled because there are a lot of advantages you don't have that other people have. And, uh, you know, just being born with a certain color puts you in a kind of like situation that you're not as able as other people to achieve your dreams or become who you want because you have more obstacles in front of you. So it's also metaphorically talking that there's a lot of symbolism in this film Very that much. all that the audience pick up on. For example, the pomegranate scene, uh, you know, and then you present like just like a pomegranate you know, the earth represents this pomegranate, there are all different seeds in it, and um, at the end, like, we all have the same color of blood, like, when you squeeze a pomegranate, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter what color the pomegranate inside, it's all, like, red, and we are all, like, sitting together in this world to survive, like, nobody wants to, you know, um, basically be a racist or make life harder for someone else, but the way, you know, we set up the society, the way we've been conditioned, we make each other's life harder than it's supposed to be. If you all go back to our childhood and connect with our inner child, um, the world could be a much better place when we start to connect from to each other from that point of view and just not look at our differences but our similarities. Every person wants to love or be loved, and I think that, that's the core of the film, where what colors, like the question, the meaning of colors, because every species look at color differently. From animals' perspective, colors have different meaning. From scientific way, there are mm-hmm. no colors. You know, everything is just reflection of light. So when we even talk about color, it's very pointless to be proud of our colors or, you know, use it as some sort of like uh, uh, prejudice because the colors really have no meaning when it comes to the science of it. Um, and we just give it meaning. Yeah, I mean, and I think we have to be judged by the color of our soul, our character, who we are inside. The content of our character, absolutely. Yeah. Now, the way you have number one, how difficult was it putting this script together? Because something that you do is you don't give us a specific place. This could be anywhere, anywhere, 
Um, you yeah. keep the locations very condensed, mm. a microcosm almost. Um, you yeah. also, you've got a multi-layer apartment where Magdalene and Monet live and Walt and Walton lives on top of them. So you've got that metaphoric hierarchy in there. Yeah. You know, the white man is on top. The black family is, is below them. Um, there's a lot of thought that you put into this. And were you thinking of all this when you were writing this script, Mustafa? I think uh, one of the big challenges was when I wrote this script, it was right after I uh, watched what happened uh, in the U.S. with all the Black Lives Matter movements. And I realized that, uh, you know, I also am a painter at the Federation of Canadian Artists and I realized like, how pointless it is that us looking at colors in this way. And uh, I wrote this script and uh, I brought it to the community. I had... Uh, uh, two good friends of mine, black producers, that they looked at the script, and we had also um, a script consultant, and, and just made it like from there it took it life of its own, and it went to different revisions to represent not just racism in America, but globally. That's why it doesn't have a location. I wanted to show that that racism is not specific to one location or place or time. It's it always been there and always be just like color blindness. And then um, with the characters too, it was surprising for me because uh, you know. Um, Chantel, who plays the lead actress, and then you know Trey, who plays the kid, they've never been offer- given opportunity to play in a feature film as a lead. And and a lot of like uh, people of color or black characters uh, in the film, they were their first experience even doing a feature film or something as a lead character. So mm-hmm. it just shows that you know when you have that opportunity, they'll shine, and when they're given the opportunity, they'll they really can show and relate with the character uh, what they're going through. So I think script-wise, it took a few months to go and get it to a place where we all feel comfortable because even within black community, racism is felt differently. If you're in Canada or States or in Europe, like depending also which black community you belong to, I found out that we all have our own racism. Even within black community, there is racism. That's what my friends told me. So it's hard to know what racism is and what the experiences, but that's why I wanted to make it more metaphoric and more symbolic and just talk about the, the whole idea of looking at colors and, um, you know, we'd work with the color scientists, which was very difficult. They have to mathematically input everything and see what would a color blind person see the world, um, you know, what would it look like mathematically right? and then show that on, on the screen and from the POV of the characters. So overall, it was very... Um, unique project and challenging, but I'm glad that we went to many uh, different festivals, Vancouver Black Film Festival, Montreal Black Film Festival, Toronto Black Film Festival, and the audience really enjoyed this film, and we had a great reception, and it shows that, you know, it's, it's a project that relates to the community, and in a bigger picture, everyone who almost participated in the film experienced racism in one way or the other, mm-hmm. including myself. So I think... Um, it's, it's a project that is just kind of unifying us and saying that we see, um, let's see each other in a different color. Let's see each other from the inside out. Like how we are from the inside should be more important than how we are on the outside. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've got to ask you about the, the whole idea of scientifically de- um, working with the colors as to how a colorblind person, be it uh, someone like Magdalene, who has um, tritinopia, or somebody like Monet, who is a monochromatic type of yeah. colorblindness. 
you work with your cinematographer, Sterling Bancroft, and you have some amazing transitions here as you go from the black and white of Monet's world and as his mother, as Magdalene, is holding a prism and turning it in the sunlight. We see the colors of the rainbow, the prismatic effect uh, that comes out, and we see it not just in color, but also in the shades of gray that come in the monochromatic world. And that is so stunning. And then you punctuate this film with two incredible montages that are essentially white on white. The one speaks to the idea of a pomegranate with, you know, inside the pomegranate, it's just like people, it's blood red. Uh, And, but Stunning. How did you and Sterling develop the visual tonal bandwidth and those visual sequences like that? Because especially those two montages, Midway, the white on white pomegranate with the red punctuating, and then the stunning climactic uh, montage at the end. Just beautiful. How did the two of you create this? (laughs) I think I remember I talked to Sterling about like um, the pomegranates, for example, that you look at a pomegranate seed and think of it as a human. The seed has uh, is white, so like you think of it as our bones, and then you have a red, you know, juicer on it, and it's basically your blood. And all these pomegranate seeds representing people of the same, you know, group. And then in this case, like black people being like squeezed and like oppressed and like pressured, you know, throughout centuries. And but it stick together, right? So the idea of like Oh, we can show that visually, and uh, that's why we washed out all the colors and almost showed red, showing that you know that red represents the blood. That at mm-hmm. the end of the day, um, you know, we we stick together because you know it's all about the blood. When you see that uh, people like dying or going through horrible things, that blood of someone innocent can um, continue a movement, you know, one person dies, but it saves a lot of other lives because then you have these movements, which stops a lot of other prejudice around the world. So I want to show that even one seed can make a big, big difference. And in this case, we, we try to go with black and white and make it more like, a you know, a dream sequence where we are in the surreal, um, mm-hmm. world of like, uh, subconscious of, uh, Magdalene, which in that case, she's, she's in coma. And the idea of going to coma shows that a lot of like people who experience racism, metaphorically, they're in like coma, you know, because they they're not in the society. They kind of mm-hmm. like uh, push aside that they exist, but they don't. They are there, but they're not contributing because they're not. They kind of give it up on the idea of like they they can be a part of society in any any way. So a lot of people just like shut down. And I think that's a spiritual coma in some ways, where a lot of people who experience racism or prejudice in an extreme way. Mm-hmm. And then for the rest of this film, we wanted to show the colorful world of the kids and how children see the world more colorful, even though he sees black and white. Mm-hmm. When we look at his, when we look at the world around him, it's all colorful. So it's all in the head. I also want to show that like our suffering and a lot of things can, you know, um, translate to joy if if we look at the world in a different way. So the kid, even though, you know, the the mom is trying to protect him from racism and all that. He's created a very colorful world around himself, even though he doesn't see the colors. And I think um, that's how children grow up. But unfortunately, at some point, you realize that's not how the world is. So mm-hmm. it's uh, 
the mother's perspective. She she sees colors this like different way, and she has to imagine colors to paint them, because she hasn't seen the, the true colors too. So the idea of like our imagination can save us and become our hero. When you imagine a better world, when you imagine colors differently, and even someone races, they have to imagine the world differently in order to, you know, get out of the the system that they're in. Mm-hmm. And it seems with the. Uh, Walton, you know, we show that he has no color in his apartment. Everything I was just going to say white. that, yeah. So he's a true colorblind. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I noticed that there's no his walls are just bland. Uh, you know, yeah. everything is bland. And what does he have for plants? He has dried cotton. Yeah. <laughs> dried cotton uh, plants. Um, so he has no color. Uh, until that you have that one incredible scene, Mustafa, between Walton and Monet as Monet is painting and he is trying to get Walton to remember his inner child. And then and he and he tells him, Will you play the piano? Pretend that you're playing the piano with paint. Mm. And yeah. you have the two of them Handprints, fingerprints, mushing colors together all over this pristine white wall. And it is magical to watch that scene. The chemistry in that scene between Trey and Gary, what they bring to that scene is it is magical. It is beautiful to watch. And it has a very tribal impact because, you know, it represents the the handprints in the cave. Yes. Um, and the idea was that, you know, all that last of us is our memory. Sometimes you look back at thousands of years ago and realize that all those people die at the end and all that is their story they tell. And I think now, you know, a thousand years from now, people are going to look at us and say, laugh at our racism and say these people like really fought over colors, you know. That was maybe something like the same thing we look at, like a lot of barbarian, um, you know, behaviors of human um, in, in thousand years ago. We were surprised and shocked, and I think we're going through enlightenment and things are getting better gradually, but hopefully we can achieve that understanding in this life while we are alive, not, mm-hmm. not for other generations to look at us and say, you know, God just for the stories we told. You know, I have to ask you, Mustafa, because Magdalene is a painter, and yeah. she has some beautiful paintings that she's trying to sell, they were supposed to go into a gallery, and oh, gallery shut down. So now she's on the sidewalk at night trying to sell her paintings, and then many of them she's hanging. Because I know you are also a painter. Are these your paintings? Yes, yes, yes those are my paintings, actually. I oh. uh, selectively painted them for the film. They're and, beautiful. Uh, some of them have been exhibited at the galleries here, but uh, I exclusively wanted to kind of uh, paint them. And for me, it's a meditation when I paint. Because film industry is very hard. It's like you have a budget to make film, but with this film, we had no <laughs> uh, government support or anything. You just made the budget independently. So sometimes when I cannot make it film, I paint because that you know all depends on me and the the canvas, no no one else. But uh, it's still a way of telling a story, and you just tell one frame at a time. Oh, I I am in love with the one that is pink with the upside down heart. Yeah. <laughs> that I yeah. fell in love with the minute I saw it on screen. Yeah. Uh, it, that one is actually uh, the the family. It's mixed family, and it's their ashes, and it shows that the end of the day when we burn, our ashes are the same color. 
to regard the face the black mom and a white mm-hmm. father and the kid is mixed at the end like doesn't matter all these colors end up being gray and and it talks about like overall idea of how like, you go back to nature and and to nature we are all the same I want to see more of your paintings. After seeing the ones you did for the film, I want to see more of your paintings. You know, working. Yeah, I have actually. <laughs> I have over sixty paintings and poetry that uh, coming out in a book, um, and the, the poetry I then was mine too. So I do a lot of painting and poetry, but this is something that I've been writing and uh, painting for years, and I am waiting for an opportunity, hopefully, to publish them. But all of them are about social issues, whether it's racism or climate change or other things that like we're dealing with today. But uh, I'll have over 300 poetry and 60 paintings or paintings that are original. And hopefully that would be my uh, story to tell one time when the time comes. But for I make films and like here and there, I have some of my paintings in my films. So that's my signature. I usually have my poetry and paintings in my film because I like a poetic film where the audience remembers certain things. And you're not just like being captured by the visual effects and, and the sound and all that. You sometimes have the moment of like looking at it as a piece of art, not not just like uh, entertainment. Well, and but this is very deliberate. Each of looking in Walton's apartment, looking in Magdalene and Monet's apartment, uh, you have a big difference with your lighting. Magdalene and Monet, you've got light coming in the windows. We see that yeah. in Walton's apartment. It's his lights. He has lights turned on, but they're very dim, and we never see light coming through, uh, you know, the windows. Uh, yeah. So you really play with that. And your production designer, Miles Engel, yeah. does a beautiful yeah. job in each of these, making each of these just. You have Waltons that is so metaphorically closed off and closed in, and yeah. blanketed, eyes covered, yeah. shrouded. And then you have light coming in, bright white light uh, coming into Magdalena Monet's apartment. Miles did an amazing job with the layouts and making use of the spaces. Yeah, Miles was like uh, raised in New York, and I think ah. you know, his experience of color blindness and, and also he had some experience with that, and as well as like racism in New York versus like producer who uh, was raised in Vancouver, they have different ideas. And the idea of, like, that the sun really makes an impact. Like, when you have sun, you have hope. The idea of that the sun shines on all of us equally, it doesn't discriminate, like, what color we are. Like, the, the nature is just giving, you know, and if you can have that same thing. There's a poem by Hafez. He said, uh, after all these years, the sun never tells the earth you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It can light up the sky. And wow. I think to me that was the idea of like, you know, we can always be like the sun and have no expectation of what we give to the earth or to, to people who need us. The world would be a better place. So um, that was that. I uh, just have to go back to production now because I'm in between uh, filming and oh, other uh, projects. Right now I'm doing a film for what's happening in Iran with the woman uprising in Iran. And Ooh. the protests have been happening. Yeah, it's my next project and it's called For Hair. And uh, it's a very moving project about uh, some Iranian students that challenge the um, government and they, they want to like uh, go out and, and you know, experience their freedom and let their hair out. But uh, there's a lot of twists in it. So that's what I'm doing next. But I wanted to kind of let people know on April, um, April 4th, our film will be out. 
fourth, sorry. Fourth. fourth get, get that date right, Mustafa. It's April 4th <laughs> on digital. April 4th, yeah. It will be all across different platforms, and I hope people can order now. We can pre-order on Apple and, and different platforms, and hopefully they can watch and enjoy the film and uh, have a new experience. It definitely is a new experience, and it is a very emotional one. I can't thank you enough for taking a break in production, Mustafa, to, to join me here today. Now, when will you have for her done? When can I be on the lookout for that? Uh, I think the hope is uh, to have it uh, in May out for the festival. Sorry, Toronto Film Festival in September. Very nice. Hopefully, we submit it. Uh, we'll submit to Toronto and we'll have their uh, first screening. But I'll let you know when it comes out, and I definitely would love to talk to you about that as well. Absolutely. Every film I've done has been about social issues, and I hope I continue to make more awareness about different topics. Um, and as a citizen of the world, I think when you feel like you're, you know, at, at, the, at the end of it, you always identify ourselves with men, women, person of color, whatever. But below, like behind all that, you're human. Beyond all that, you're all human and trying to have a human experience in this body. But um, as, uh, I think it's very important to you know, connect with all the different people and see the similarities rather than our differences, because that's the only way we can move forward. Um, and I hope that, yeah, this film helps people to move forward and uh, you know, uh, unveil their true colors. Well, there's nothing like seeing the world through the eyes of a child. And that is yeah. definitely what we have here with Colorblind. Mustafa. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. And it's I can't a pleasure talking to you. Thank a you. Joy. I can't wait till we talk again. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Bye. Mustafa. Bye-bye. And that was Mustafa Keshvari talking about colorblind. It is really, it's an exquisite film. And this whole idea of science mathematically computing what colors look like to those in colorblindness it is just it's amazing um but it's the emotion it's the metaphor um it's everything that this film says it's i can't encourage you enough to april 4th on all the digital platforms do yourself a favor and at the very least you're gonna fall in love with little trey maradotti who plays the nine-year-old monet you're gonna love him um, he is a kid to watch. Okay, so now we're going to switch gears again and get back into the groove of spinning gold. And when we broke for Mustafa, Mustafa to call in, we were in the middle of Tim talking to us about the story, about, you know, the story he wanted to tell. And... You know, did he want to direct? How did he come to direct? Did he just want to tell a story? Did he want to direct? So let's pick it up right now with more from Tim Bogart talking spinning gold. That was too close. Uh, but I did think I was, I was perhaps uniquely capable of um, finding out the truth about him um, as a writer. And so really thinking of it only for me as a writer and as a producer, um, and uh, I would say for, for a good chunk of time, maybe a decade, one of my, one of my most important jobs was just saying no to people trying to get the rights. But ultimately in 1999, um, we finally set it up at the studio, for the, at a studio for the first time. 
And um, at that point, it became great. So we've now set this up. I guess I now have to take it more seriously. I've been talking about it for years, <laughs> just in the context of, let me tell you some wonderful stories about my dad. Let me tell you the greatest hits about my father's life. But suddenly I had to actually write it. And so I then embarked on this incredible journey that any child should be blessed to have, which was this forensic investigation of who my father was. And so many people opened up their hearts and souls to tell me incredible stories about what he meant to them. And I mean from the Clive Davises to the Donna Summers and everyone in between, everybody opened up uh, their hearts to tell me what he meant to them, what he meant to music. And the more I learned and the crazier the stories uh, revealed themselves to be, the more clear it was to me that I just had this incredible story to tell. And as a storyteller, how could I not? In talking with all of these other people who opened up to you about your dad, Tim, what was the most surprising thing that you learned or discovered about him? I think the most surprising thing for me um, was just how close to disaster he always was. You know, as a 12-year-old when he died, although I spent so much time with him, even though that was quite young, um, uh, he, he really was an incredible clear force. I, I feel like I didn't know the essence of him, but I knew him as the success. I knew him as the guy who had created this incredible label. I mean, when Casablanca really explodes, it's 1977, so I'm seven years old. So my formative years with him, it was a miraculous success. And I, I think like, hopefully, most people see this movie will walk into it and go, well, Kiss, of course, they were a success. And that summer, of course, she was a success. None of that was true. And how close he was to constant disaster and the incredible, frankly, balls he had to just keep betting on himself, that I did not know. I knew about his force of nature. I knew how, how people just loved this man and they gravitated towards him. I didn't know how dangerous it was to constant disaster. I didn't know how deeply he was involved in the mob. Um, I didn't know how, how, how on a daily basis he was on the verge of bankruptcy. So that to me was quite surprising in that he put on a show, even for his family ultimately, um, everybody just saw what he wanted us to see. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, a lot of that stuff was like revelatory. It really was. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I always love whenever somebody thinks about Love to Love Your Baby, they just assume that that must have been a smash. But for that, I mean, I do the scene in the movie, and it really was that scene, and maybe I shouldn't have been in that party, maybe my parents shouldn't have let me, but I was. That's what happened. This song came out and flopped and was forgotten about, and someone accidentally put it on at a party years later. But for that, there's no Donna Summer. But for that, there's no disco. That stuff... I don't think people know. Um, I also don't think people know one of the things I love so much, and I always kind of um, talk about the film as, um, or the story rather, it really was The Island of Misfit Toys. Neil Bogart was Neil Bogart, the mm -hmm. project. Gene Simmons was Chaim Witz, and Paul Simmons was Stanley Eisen, and Donna Summer was on Donna Gaines, and, and, and Bill Withers was installing toilet seats on airplanes. None of these people should have succeeded. And somehow they found each other, and, and and as a result of that, this fairy tale happened. It was, it was, I think, a revelation for anyone who loves these songs, but have no idea where the artist actually came from who ultimately created them. Mm -hmm. Now, at what point did you decide that you were going to tackle this story as a director? 
Because this is where your talents just explode, Tim. Explode. Thank you. It it was very late in the game. Um, I, as a writer, um, crafted the the first draft, a very long first draft, 108 pages, uh, pretty early um, after 1999. And then we went through a whole host of of potential stars to play him, potential directors. And every time we would work with another director, when I was at one studio, then another studio, um, we would keep developing it further away from what the original idea was. And ultimately, the studios or the financiers at that point would come back and say, no, no, you need to get it back to what you originally had, Tim. So there was this connection that people seemed to have with my vision of it. And ultimately, uh, appropriately, anytime a, another filmmaker came on, they wanted to make it their own. But they all seemed to be focused on different things. Certainly the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of it was attractive to people. They always loved the excess. I never thought... That was the story. Uh, not that I shied away from it. I just thought, it, as the character says in the film, it was sex before it was deadly. It was like, it was the 70s. Yeah. Um, these things were not bad things. I actually thought a lot of my father's flaws, of which he had many, were ultimately his superhero traits. If he wasn't a gambler, he would never have succeeded. If he wasn't an addict, he would never have succeeded. But every time a new filmmaker came on board, they, they took it in a very different direction. And it's not that we were trying to protect like the image of my father, because again, as I said, I think his flaws made him most interesting. It's just that it wasn't the story that I thought audiences wanted to, to hear. And and over the years, as a as a filmmaker, I was setting up other projects to direct. I just kept kind of pushing aside this one. And it was finally after we, um, I finally decided to part ways with uh, Justin Timberlake, who was attached for a while. Um, to, to play my father because uh, he was just way too consumed with his music at the time and it was going to take too long that I finally just said it, it's just time um, and I'm going to do what he did which is better on myself. I think you made a very, very wise decision because we learn about we learn about the industry from your father's perspective and what these artists went through to become superstars but we learn so much about the man and who he was and his love for his family, his love for his core group of friends who were with him and supported him in his crazy ideas. That is such a fascinating aspect. And then you build around that. The way you've structured this film visually is beyond outstanding. Your use of color, you're spanning three decades. You've got 50s, 60s, 70s happening in here. Your hair and makeup and costuming, off the charts. Perfection. Absolute period perfection. So many people I have felt, when you look at these biopics, specifically in this period, I've always felt most people over period to period. Mm-hmm. I think most projects that have been done about the 1970s look at the 70s as a joke, look at the, the style as a joke. But anybody who's actually there, who actually was in Studio 54, people looked great. This is where some of the best designers of our current day came from. So I, I think it was always an odd, um, kind of easy path to take to make fun of that period. And I just thought there's a reason that period has sustained. There's a reason it keeps coming back. I think the style was actually quite extraordinary. The music was clearly uh, extraordinary. And so setting out from the design standpoint is incredibly important to us to not overperiod the period. Yes, people have big hair, but you know, not that big. And yes, the coffers were wider, but not that wide. And that was a very important thing for us was to not make it a joke because the people who lived it. 
Um, you know, I say this um, in the movie to, to, in different ways, but it really is true. There's not a single person I interview, and I know Clive Davis, Barry Gordy, all the all the music guys, almost verbatim. At so, I would start these interviews, like hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews. I would start these interviews and say, just first tell me how it felt. I just want to know what it felt like to be there at the time. And and I swear, almost every single one of them put the do not disturb on their phone, turned to me and said, don't know how I survived it. Don't know if I'd do it again. That was the greatest fucking time of my life. And, and that became the compass of this movie. It wasn't a joke. It was the greatest time of these people's lives, which meant there was magic there. And that's really what I said I could celebrate. You definitely do that, and you do that with your visual design, your work with Byron. The camera work is just exemplary, Tim, and the visual tonal bandwidth of the film. We have these very distinct looks happening in the film. You've got concerts happening. You've got a gospel church. You've got studio sessions. You've got the quiet, intimate moments, such as Gene Simmons and Neil on the bus. It, uh, which yeah. is one of the most beautiful. Byron, Byron, who I had, I had the honor of doing a film right before this, and then I just finished another film with him um, after, after we did Spinning Gold. And the one thing that Byron and I, and I, and I will never do anything without him, I mean, we're just such a wonderful partnership. And he, um, very, very early on, it was very clear to me that the best way to tell this movie was as if my father was the director, not me. My father was a cinematographer, not me. My father designed the costumes, because ultimately, he just tells the most fabulous version of those stories. Once we took that premise, mm -hmm. that we're really seeing this film through the, the purpose, because ultimately, because you've seen the film, you know how it ends, um, it is ultimately a guy wrestling with the sum of his life. And therefore, he's, he's offering up, but it, the, what happened and this happened in the way that he remembers it. Right. And, and very early on, Byron and I look at that. So that means when it's dark, it's the darkest dark there ever was. When it's light, it's the lightest light there ever was. When it's blue, it's the bluest blue. When it's loud, it's the loudest loud. And once we took that kind of approach, the, the color and, and the composition of the picture really came into incredible clarity for us. And, and every scene just really started with, what does he want us to see? What does he not want us to see in this moment? And, and how do we serve that vision? And that really became the compass for Byron and I. And uh, yes, I, I, and Byron's work was just really breathtaking. I love the fluidity of the camera with this. It has the same fluidity as the music almost. And- Well, I, I don't know if Byron told you this. It was, um, we always thought that was really important, and early on, this was Byron's idea, the idea that we would give all the crew, the, the focus pullers, uh, everybody who could, the gaffer, the key grip, we would give them headphones. And even if the scene didn't have music in it, we would choose music that felt like it might have been playing around that time. So from the moment people came on the set every day, there was music playing, the crew was constantly being moved by the motion and the rhythm of that music, and we absolutely believe that that informed the way the film ultimately looked. I totally... The operator listened to these songs as they were moving the crane, and it really mattered. I totally agree, because you feel it. If you're looking for it, just to point out camera movement, you can see some of the fluidity and some of the camera angles that are chosen, but you really feel it. 
in tandem with the music. And I just think that is a spectacular way for this film to be presented. Now, I love the use of red. I love how you use the red wash. I mean, the metaphor there of how he sees things, it gets a wash and a red glow. But that also equates to everything he does is a gamble. Everything he does is a risk. It's red, stop. And I love a lot of the metaphor that you have inserted and, and integrated within this film. It just adds, it elevates the film to another level, Tim. Oh, thank you. Just uh, absolutely amazing. Now, I'm, I'm curious here, how challenging was the editing of this film? <laughs> so challenging. <laughs> it was so challenging. Um, it was the hardest thing uh, by far in the first years I've been doing um, for me to edit. Um, and in large part because um, we always knew we were bouncing around in time, but ultimately, what did the audience need to start investing in this guy they have absolutely no knowledge about? And we changed the structure editorially a number of times. I did, um, which, I, which I like doing, I know some, some filmmakers don't, I did a, an audience test screen so early. I did it maybe four weeks after at the wrap. Um, just to test the basic construct of people following the, just the basic storyline. And the answer was they were not. Uh, we mm. loud and clear. And we had opened in a, in a different way in Buddha, um, and there was too much information being thrown out, thrown around. So we very early on realized that playing with the structures would be crucial. Um, and because we did this one independently, we were, we were blessed with the ability to do it on our own online. And so one of the things I think is probably the greatest asset to the film is we kept taking breaks and walking away from it. You know, there was a period where we, we just stop for a second and, and wait for it and, and literally not look at a frame and then come back. Um, and, and that was so informative to be able to give it some time to ultimately reveal itself to us. Um, how we use music to drive the narrative of it was so important, but one song could could overlay six or seven different themes if we did it correctly. So um, uh, I work with this extraordinary editor, Derek Ambrosi, who I'd never worked with before. Um, and he just brought such a, a level of artistry and an understanding of, of music. Um, and, and I would say so, so much of the editorial pacing um, is very much um, a result of, of his extraordinary gift. You have some incredible montages happening in here. And as you say, the scenes could over, one song could overlap six or seven situations. The Beth concert scene is beautiful, it's ethereal, it's stunning. You've got the bad girls into Dim All the Lights, right into, into the Hollywood Bowl concert with the behind the scenes on the stage, distance. I mean, just absolutely stunning montages and I'm a big montage fan I love the old Busby Berkeley's with montages and geometry and so I was just in little piggy heaven with a lot of this here Tim uh, and, and you know and, and to that what, what, what you think came out at the end and it sounds like, like you felt this as well is the montages did always seem to drive the story though yes. significantly I love the Gladys Night Midnight Train to Georgia sequence where we are we are transporting him that song that song metaphorically and actually 
transported him from his New York life to his Los Angeles life. And ultimately, in that scene, we physically transport him from New York to Los Angeles. We physically transport him from one woman to the other woman. Um, so uh, it was so important that the song gave us the vehicle to drive so much more story uh, than perhaps normally would be the case. Um, it's also the case, we have so many scenes, I forget how many, there's so many scenes in this movie, um, and the only reason they fit is because of the construct with the music, I think. I agree, and then piggybacking on that is you have Justin Gray, who's doing a score that underlies all of the needle drops, and then I have to give kudos, your sound people did, a, with the sound mix and edit, did a beautiful job so that we hear the songs, we hear score, there's wonderful soft edits in the mix that take us from one thing into another, Dialogue is yeah, never yeah. obscured. Justin Gray, who I've, I've worked with for many, many years, but this certainly was, um, you know, the, the biggest thing that we've done together. Um, and Justin also worked with my, my youngest baby brother, Evan, uh, and the two of them did, did the score. And it, early on, th there was that great challenge of how do you put a score in the middle of the movie with all these incredibly important songs? And, and the premise was it all has to feel like it's one thing. And the score has to feel like it's part of the, of the needle drops. The needle drops have to then become score. And so that architecturally was it was a decision early on, even in the writing. But what Justin and Evan were able to do uh, in composing that score just fulfilled every one of those hopes. And then yes, uh, the mix done by um, wonderful mixer from Los Angeles, Brian Berger, um, was um, just, just fabulous. And and for an independent movie. We did about 20 days. I mean, this was a very important thing, the soundscape of this film. So mm -hmm. we really knocked ourselves out on the mix, um, and, and it certainly shows, I think. Oh, it, is one. it definitely does. And, of course, this is where your casting is also so important because you've got to have people that can sell these songs that are being portrayed and presented to us. I mean, you talk about Tyler Parks. As uh, well, and not just the song. You know, Taylor hasn't done a presence. whole lot. I think what an incredibly courageous performance she gives. Yeah. Uh, she just totally comes and, and plays, and it, it's just extraordinary uh, what she does. Lettucey had not done uh, much from, from acting, and boy, she slayed it. And, and Jason Blumenthal was some of my favorite scenes in the film. I mean, he just knocks it out of the park with those scenes. I love those Ron Isley scenes. So I, I do think that the music artist, very important early on too, and I know some people will disagree with this when they see the film. I never wanted this film to be mimicry. I didn't want to mimic the 60s. I didn't want to mimic the 70s. And I did not want to mimic Donna Summer. I didn't want to mimic Kiss. I wanted people to have the essence of who these people were. And then my bet was the audience will enjoy who these humans are not because they look exactly like Donna Summer or that person is exactly like Gene Simmons or exactly like Ron Isley, but if you're going to cast the current Ron Isley, Ron Isley was a revolutionary act. Mm -hmm. Both boundaries. Um, that's Jason Derulo. So I looked at these. I looked at the essence of who these people were, really without any concern what they looked like, knowing that sometimes we do get pushback on that. Um, and I'm so thrilled with, with those choices. Casting is just impeccable. Granted, a film like Bohemian Rhapsody, Rami Malek transformed into Freddie Mercury. Sure. 
There is no doubt about it. Uh, just like Quillam Lee, a dead ringer for Brian May at that point in time. But here, there's enough of an essence. It's the essence. And with the costuming and wigs, you believe, because it's also, we're more concerned with the sound. As these people get introduced and we start hearing them, and it's what they brought, it's the sound that your dad brought and elicited from them and created. And that's more driving than a, than a mimicry. Well, and I think part of that, you know, is the decision also was we weren't casting Gene Simmons because Gene Simmons was a character. Yep. We were casting I Am With. So Casey Likes playing I Am With, that was the I wasn't casting Gene Simmons. I was casting the guy underneath that. And I wasn't casting Donna Summer. I was casting LaDonna Gaines. And so in each one of those instances, I, I was looking for it to be a slight turn left or right from what the normal expectation was. And frankly, we were doing the same with the music. Very important decision early on. You can't beat the lead on me master. You can't beat it. You shouldn't try to beat it. I wanted to know what it sounded like the first time he ever sang it. We were looking to do the first drafts of music history. And once you do that, you're able to open it up to the imperfection, to the evolution. And it gave our actors who portrayed these artists the opportunity to truly make it their own without claiming that that was the final version. Because we didn't show the final versions. We showed the journey on the way, which was really what the, what these characters were, were celebrating is how, how is music created by music lovers? What is that journey? And, and what are the sacrifices that are required to do so? Not... Let's just hear another, you know, the same version of Midnight Train to Blue that we've heard a hundred times, although it's spectacular. I wanted to look through a different lens. Well, you certainly achieved that. I found the, the kiss sequences particularly effective because everybody has such, and by the way, I bought their original single when nobody was buying it. And I have it. So, <laughs> but to see that, to see the rawness that you brought out, and the, tra the greatest transformation is LaDonna Gaines into Donna Summer. We see the shy girl, the trepidation. She's frustrated. It's, I've been down this road before. It's not going to work. Nobody buys the record. We see all that, and that's really the meat. And, that's part of the meat and potatoes of this film is that journey. Well, you know, as you mentioned, Kiss, I think that's really a, you know, a, a thing that I knew from the beginning. I, I always thought Kiss would be where potentially we just fall down because it's so easy to look at them as a joke. But they're performing 40 years later. There's nothing joking about this band. Nobody worked harder than them in their day, and nobody works harder than them today. So the idea that you could easily fall into the mimicry of that was always concerning. We, we wanted to embrace the rawness and commitment these guys had to their music, which was absolutely true and profound. You don't look at 40 years without it. The other thing I knew we kind of, you know, interestingly for the crazy rabid Kiss fans, you know, and I've seen some of this already online, you know, that's not the makeup or that's not the logo. Um, and it's not about whether we have the rights to use it. This movie takes place from 1974 to 1977. They were figuring it out. We went in great pains early on working with Gene and working with Paul and working with Peter to see what their makeup looked like before they figured it out. 
And that's what we were paying homage to. It was the creation of history, not the end result of it. So you know, it was an interesting choice. And, and I know we've got some people going, that's not right. But it actually was absolutely right. If you were at that concert at Cobo Arena that year, that's what it looked like. Um, and that's so much about that journey that we were trying to capture. Um, and hopefully people will see it for that. And I, I love that you mentioned Gene's, Gene's involvement, Paul's involvement. Because Gene Simmons, if anybody has ever followed him or listened to many interviews he's given over the decades, he talks about the early days and finding themselves. Absolutely. And and early, I mean, actually really, really, really early, uh, Gene was even getting involved producing for a while. Um, and so, you know, he spent a lot of time with me telling me, you know, stories that didn't yet make it at that point into the different biographies and the different books that they, that they would do. And, and when we started the design of the film, Dean and Paul were in contact with our costume designers and our makeup designers and the people who, who created, you know, uh, the guitar that Paul used uh, in, that, in that opening scene at, at the Century Plaza. So they were very um, uh, extraordinarily helpful um, and wanted, wanted to see it done right. Um, they had a great affinity for um, my father and... and and what he meant to them, and um, I was blessed with their, you know, wonderful support along the way. I have to ask about Jeremy Jordan. <laughs> you you got to save the best for last. And boy, is he the best! I, I will tell you, you know, <laughs> different than anything I've ever cast. I kept casting everybody else. I cast Cecil. I cast Frankie Crocker. I cast Ron Isley. I could not cast the person playing my father. And I was actually um, on the verge because we finally put together the whole cast. I was ready to, ready to make the film. I still hadn't identified who would play my father. Not surprising. That was a tough, a tough nut for me to find. Um, and I was about to cast a rather well-known um, actor uh, who, who I'm sure would have been lovely. And I, I had my cold feet the, the, the morning we were about to sort of close the deal. And I, I called Larry Mark, who's a producer on, on the film, and I said, Larry, the end monologue, which is so important, this guy says, you all know Donna, you know George Clinton, you know village people, but not one of you knows me. And I thought that was so important that this audience not know this person if we were going to take them on a journey to discover who this person was. And in a crazy last-minute move, I said, who's the greatest showman on Broadway right now? Because my father only was a showman. And Larry Marcus said, Jeremy Jordan. I had never heard of Jeremy Jordan. I went on YouTube that night. I spent about six hours going down a, a rabbit hole of one extraordinary performance after the other. I jumped on a on a, a red eye the next night to get to New York, demanded that he meet with me through his agent. <laughs> um, we hadn't done anything remotely like this in film, uh, but I just saw in him so much of um, the showman that I thought my father was, and it was absolutely the, the most important and successful creative choice of my career. He's brilliant. His performance is Oscar-worthy, i got to tell you. I agree. I think he's an absolutely remarkable talent. And I just have to say thank you very much for the last dance production number. <laughs> Louis, B., Louis B. Mayer is smiling down from the heavens with that one. That is so oh. Hollywood. That is so a musical at its finest. Just fabulous. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. Tim, thank you so much. This has been an absolute joy to get to speak with you about a film that I am so in love with. It's not even funny. <laughs> this, it, I, it, it's spectacular. 
I hope we get to chat again in the future about your upcoming projects. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was my exclusive interview with Tim Bogart, writer-director of Spinning Gold and son of the legendary Neil Bogart. March 31st, Friday, the film is out. I, I'm, I've already seen it, but I'm going to pay money to see it again. It is spectacular. If you lived the 70s, if you lived the era, if you know anything at all about Casablanca Records or the history of Kissed on a Summer, uh, the Isley Brothers, the Village People, you're going to love this film and you want to see it. If you don't know anything about it, what Neil Bogart did helped shape the music industry as we know it today. Um, This is one of my favorite films of the year, and I have no doubt it will stay there. Jeremy Jordan is award-worthy. Award-worthy. I hope that come awards time this fall, people don't forget about him. But just an outstanding film. Uh, And I just can't imagine the trepidation, the angst, internal angst that Tim felt telling his dad's story from his, what would be his dad's POV. Um, there's humor, there's heart. The cast is amazing. Besides Jeremy Jordan, you've got Michelle Monaghan, who plays Neil Bogart's uh, first wife, Beth. Jason Isaacs plays his father. Lindsay Fonseca plays girlfriend and wife number two. Uh, Joyce, who, and Joyce actually was a manager of Kiss for a while. Uh, long time, heavy guy. Vincent Pastore is in it as Big Joey. Tyler Parks is Don- LaDonna Gaines slash Donna Summer. Wiz Khalifa as George Clinton. This is, it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. As I said, in theaters, it's out on Friday, April 4th. On digital, you can check out Mustafa Keshvari's film, Colorblind. And I have to give a huge, huge, huge shout-out and a girl, yay, to my gal pal, Lisa Scottolini, whose new historical novel, Loyalty, about the rise of the mafia in Sicily, uh, is out today. Get it, get it, get it, read it, read it, read it. And hopefully in the coming months, I'm going to have some big Lisa Scottolini news on her book, What Happened to the Bennetts, which has a Hollywood option attached to it. So things are moving on that. But that is all the time we have today. I was not going to not let you hear all of uh, Tim Bogart's interview on the show today but you're also going to be able to hear it and see images of these great uh, you know the costumes the looks everything uh it is in editing right now for a video edit with an audio video edit uh slideshow that hopefully will be done today and pam's making a face in there uh And I'll have that out hopefully later tonight. This week, I will also have my interview out with Byron Werner. It's a long one, hour-long cinematographer of Spinning Gold, where we really dive into the nuts and bolts of the visuals of this film. Uh, So, until next week, 
I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. 